The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. And let me tell you, the Brood X cicadas have emerged in my neck of the woods. That means 1.5 million cicadas per acre, approximately, which translates into just billions of insects and their carcasses in this every 17-year pilgrimage they make to, to my neck of the woods. The last time I experienced Brood X, of course, 17 years ago, my younger son was a baby, and I have this vivid memory of taking my boys out for a walk in their little red wagon and the wheels and my feet crunching over the cicada exoskeletons. Very odd that I'm looking forward to it this year. Kind of like I do a snowstorm where I'm almost afraid it's not going to be as bad as is being predicted. Anyway, I digress. Back to the show. Listeners, today's guest is Rich Tao, the president and founder of Engageus. He has spearheaded groundbreaking research in public policy, financial communications, insurance, trial consulting, and infomercials. His firm's clients range from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Business Roundtable to CNN and NBC. He regularly advises leaders in Congress and their staffs, presidential campaigns, and corporate executives on how to improve their messaging. His recommendations span the, uh, have shaped the national debate over Social Security, Medicare tax reform, and recent projects have focused on energy, climate change, immigration, foreign policy, welfare, government spending, I mean, really everything. I'm just going to say everything. And of course, we are most interested in his clean energy and climate messaging work. So without further ado, my conversation with Rich Tao. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm super excited to bring you a man that is so smart and just has his finger on the pulse of everything messaging-wise that we do. Rich, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So I know that you wear many, many hats. <laughs> I'm a dasher. I thought that first, even though it doesn't necessarily relate directly to the climate change work that that we do to appeal to the center, right? I want to get to that. But I thought that you could talk a little bit about the Swing Voter Project just because it's new, it's the shiny object, and I found it really compelling, the, the article that I read in Axios this week, which I will link in our show notes. Yeah, so the Swing Voter Project is a project that we started actually in March of 2019, and then we adapted it after the election. And each month, starting in March of 2019, we interviewed swing voters. The swing voters before the election were Obama to Trump voters. People voted Obama in 12 and Trump in 16. We did that for 21 straight months in partnership with Axios and a company called the Schlesinger Group that does all the recruiting for us. After the election, Axios said they wanted to keep going. And we decided to alter the composition of the groups to now look at Trump to Biden voters. People voted Trump in 16, then Biden in 20. 
So for the last five months, we've conducted groups, second Tuesday of each month, except in January. And what we've been doing is trying to understand how they look at the administration, how they look at what's going on politically in the country. And we do two 90-minute segments uh, back-to-back with people from the 10 most competitive states in the 2020 election. So you're talking Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, uh, Texas, let's say Minnesota, Michigan. I think I covered all or most in North Carolina. I think that's yeah. it. <laughs> so about, I mean, I don't, I, I will, this is, there are two questions I guess that I have. One is how many swing voters approximately, or what percentage of the electorate do you think are swing voters nationwide? And then about how many people were participating in your effort? Um, we don't know exactly how many swing voters there were in the last election. And I haven't seen a, a total estimate of that yet. Normally, I keep an eye out for it. And it takes a while until the analyses are done of the election data. I know in the 2016 election, uh, the calculation was there were you know, somewhere between, I think it was roughly four to nine million, I think who were Obama to Trump voters, but it depends on whose data you're looking at. It's never precise because no one knows exactly who voted for whom. It's all presumed uh, to be correct or in some reasonable range of correct, but we don't know. Um, You know, we, 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 we do know that the margins were very, very narrow in states that Trump had carried in 16 that Biden picked up in 20. So now there's some reasonable estimates that you can make, but you know, it's probably in the millions, but probably in the lower millions, not in the mega millions. What are there some underlying characteristics or similarities that you see between the type of voter who would go Obama, Obama to Trump and then Trump to Biden? I'm assuming there's some overlap in that circle. There were people that went Obama, Trump, Biden. But just in general, the attitude of a swing voter, what sort of um, characters like what character? Characteristics do they have that distinguish them from more kind of strictly party line voters? Sure. Let me answer the other question you had first, then I'll answer that question. So you ask how many people we do each month, somewhere between 11 and 14. Okay. So super targeted. Yeah, super targeted. Yeah, it's a focus. It's not meant to be a poll. You know, Mm -hmm. polling is quantitative. We're qualitative. I'm trying to understand why people say what they do. Um, You know, well, I'll ask people to to tell us, you know, whether they agree with A or B just to get a rough head count. Um, you know, if everybody agrees with something, that's interesting to me, right? If, if they're split, that's also interesting. But I want to know why. Right. I'm, I'm more interested in seeing what's inside people's heads as opposed to counting heads. That's funny because I had as one of my questions, what is the difference between what you're doing versus a poll or a survey that has thousands of participants? So you're just super targeted, but it's still revealing. The, the information that you glean is still revealing. Yeah, I want to understand why as opposed to how many. That, right. That's really what I'm trying to get at. Although there is some element of how many, and just again, as I said, if everybody's in favor of something, that's interesting, but I want to know why. Right. So uh, how do they differ between the Obama Trump and the Trump to Biden? So there's a very different mindset between people who move from Obama to Trump and then people who move from Trump to Biden. I can tell you when I was doing the Obama Trump groups, I had roughly 20 to 25% of the total people in the study across the 21 months we did it, who basically said that they were done with Trump. It was a minority. And, that, and in every session of 10, 11, 12 people, I would have a handful 
who said, I've had enough of Trump. But they were all but one month, they were in the minority. And it said to me that, that most of these people who had chosen Trump after voting for Obama were sticking with Trump. They liked Trump. They liked what Trump offered. But if you were peeling away from him, you had a very strong reason why you were doing that. And so the people I'm talking to now are the, more like the kind of people who were in that minority of people when I did Obama to Trump. And so those are, those are people who now said, you know, they didn't like the way Trump handled the pandemic. They didn't like the way Trump comported himself in office. Uh, they didn't like the, his handling of uh, Charlottesville. And most of them are still with him. I ask them now, you know, what's the emotion you feel when you see Biden on TV? And you hear things like relief, calm. I got a couple of people who said sad when I asked the other night, mm. you know, because they, they, you know, they, they just, they kind of look at him and they think he's old and he's tired and, you know, they, 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 he doesn't cheer them up. But for some of the, you know, for most of them, it's, it's a more positive, I can, I can relax again type of thing. We have a person in charge that they think behaves more like a president. I definitely do less doom scrolling, I have to say, since January 20th. I've been able to resist the urge to get on Twitter and, and imagine the ways that the, the world is going to collapse, um, personally speaking. In your most recent conversation, you talked to your focus group about um, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. And I thought that those results were really interesting and, and timely. And again, I know this isn't climate focused, but listeners, you know, we're just going to mix it up a little today. So um, for those who are listening, she just lost, um, was just ousted from her leadership position um, the day before Rich and I are speaking. So this is Thursday on Wednesday, Wednesday. Well, that was just yesterday, right? Or did it happen on Tuesday? <laughs> yeah, she was ousted. She was ousted uh, yesterday. Yeah, okay. it seems like a hundred years ago, but it was yesterday. Right. In in COVID times, every day feels like it's thirty six hours. Um, so that just happened, and you know we're still kind of reading through all of the you know Monday morning quarterbacking and analysis of what that symbolizes. But I thought that your focus group had an interesting take on that. Yes, yeah, so we had fourteen respondents this time. 13 of the 14 thought it was a mistake for the Republicans in Congress to oust Liz Cheney. Now, I need to put that in context. All 14 of them were not paying attention to news about Liz Cheney. Only six of them had heard any news about her in the prior week. So I had to tell them what she had said about President Trump, what she wrote in the Washington Post on May 5th in an op-ed piece. So once I shared some of that op-ed with them, we talked about what was happening. It was at that point that 13 of the 14 said it was a mistake. And they basically thought that the Republican Party is beholden to former President Trump, that the party is being run to satisfy the whims of one man, and that uh, Liz Cheney was basically suffering the consequences of following her conscience. So that, that was it. It was a statement more about the Republican Party than it was a statement about Liz Cheney. Interesting. And, and I, I really feel that when you, you know, living inside the beltway, like I do, I always wonder when I'm talking to friends and family who live outside my bubble, how much they're hearing. And, and I will say, I think in the last four years, people who I felt never paid attention or rarely paid attention, unless it was something big and, and monumental, there are no, you know, I, for example, my college roommate just came to town. We're both vaccinated now. First time seeing each other in a while. And I brought up Liz Cheney and I was half expecting her to have never heard of her. 
but mm-hmm. she has. I think people, some people who in the past I noticed didn't really pay as much attention to the news or read it daily are now focusing on these things. But I did wonder how much is this just a little bubble of people who live here and follow and digest the news all the time versus what the national attitude might be. So I'm now thinking more quantitative rather than your quantitative versus qual- qualitative. Um, let's let's quickly pivot over to climate and clean energy because that is how I have um, come across you in the past various um, groups that I've been involved with and the presentations that you've made and you have found, I feel like really, um, again, focused, targeted examples of what works and what doesn't when we talk about issues like climate change and the clean energy revolution or transition. Mm-hmm. So I thought it might be interesting to our listeners to just hear a little bit about what works, what's compelling versus what are kind of some of the words and expressions that we need to stay away from, especially as it come as it relates to moving people on who are left or sorry, right of center, um, politically speaking. Yeah, so we've done a large amount of message testing for a variety of clients over the last seven years on climate and clean energy, looking at people who are center right and how to move them. Uh, the good news is that there's more receptivity on the right than there was when I started doing this. Uh, The bad news is that there's still a long way to go. And depending upon where you are on the right, you have a different perspective on how serious the problem is and, and what should be done. In general, it's much easier to talk about clean energy than just to talk about climate. Climate is highly politicized, as you know. Clean energy is less so. There's, there's some politicization there, but you got and you have to be careful about how you talk about the topic. But for the most part, people understand that we, it, it makes sense to move toward a clean energy future. The thing you have to be careful about, and this came up in some recent research we did. The, the most recent stuff we did, by the way, was in December with conservative voters and then Trump to Biden voters. It wasn't part of the swing voter project. It was a separate effort. And what, what we found is that the term clean energy, I'm talking about messaging, Chelsea, mm-hmm. is that clean energy for most people is just solar and wind. So if you're in favor of hydro power and nuclear and carbon capture and uh, ex- new work on battery storage, geothermal, go down the list, people aren't necessarily thinking of that as clean energy. And so you have to talk about, and the phraseology we came up with was clean energy or energy made clean. So that that you're you're talking about something that's more robust. Because again, if you're, let's say, a conservative politician and you're talking about, we need more clean energy, people are going, oh, he thinks we need more solar and wind. So you need to start getting into some of the specifics of what you're endorsing and sounding much more robust. I think that's an important part of of thinking about clean energy in that way. Once you start talking about that, then you can start making some advances. You know, another way to get people interested is to talk about uh, bringing manufacturing back to the US where the environmental standards are higher than they are in places like China and India, for example. So you get a two for one on that one because conservatives are very sensitive to manufacturing being shipped overseas. And also you get to talk about the environmental benefits of doing things in the U.S. We dial tested that moment to moment spike, you know, 30 point spike among swing voters and and, and off the charts 
messaging for for uh, conservative, consistent Trump voters. So I, you know, I think that while I hear what you're saying that solar and wind are sort of what people automatically think of when they think of clean energy or renewable energy, is that because it just in the general discourse we talk about it more? Is it because it's more visual, people see the turbines or they see the solar arrays. And so it's something that when they see it, they know what it is. We're not all driving by a nuclear plant every day or, you know, and I think hydro is, is, is focused on a specific part of the country. Well, and most as, as is most of this, right. Mm -hmm. So certain areas of the country, certain regions are going to have a different, um, um, version of what works for them in the clean energy space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and in talking to uh, conservative policymakers, as I have over the years, one of the things that's become abundantly clear to me is that they see their districts in part by the kinds of energy it produces. And they'll say, I'm from a nuclear district. I'm from a coal district. I'm from an oil district. Mm-hmm. So there, there's their self-identification is tied up in the energy sources produced in the district. And it was only after I was in a meeting where a bunch of these folks were talking to each other, and I heard and I listened to how they were describing their districts to one another, I realized how entrenched that perspective is and how important it is to work within that mindset of those members. So if you have a member who's in a, I don't know, a hydro district, whether it's a, a, large, it's a large dam or a nuclear district or there are a couple of power plants, if they can talk about climate in the context of what they do in their district, that becomes very powerful for them. So it's not just about the energy source as producing jobs, for example, and producing energy. It's also about how it helps us drive down carbon emissions. So you can, they can start seeing what's already an asset to their district in a new and additional light. And that to me is important because that becomes part of a clean energy conversation that can take place in more places. And and what I've seen with members who are in the coal district, for them to be able to talk about carbon capture, suddenly they've got a solution. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Um, I love this, this, um, thought that you just shared about members saying, I'm from a coal district, an oil district, a solar district. Do you think then that once, so let's say I live in a, in a heavy wind area and I'm seeing the benefits of wind and my lawmakers are talking about it all the time. Does that then help somebody see what's happening in another state and say, oh, well, they have in, you know, Arizona for solar, what we have here for wind, and to kind of appreciate and support the other energy sources. I think that they can, the commonalities, they can see that they're both working on addressing the, the emissions issue. The members being what they are, they're really hyper focused on what their district does. So if they can borrow another district's messaging, so you got, so rather than you, you sort of have an apples to oranges comparison, solar, solar versus wind, I'd rather talk about a, a member who's in a, a coal district like McKinley, for example, and have him be someone who can get a member from another coal district to start adopting McKinley's type of messaging. That to me is where the opportunity lies. 
Interesting. But then it's an apples to apples comparison. So you said that you see these um, favorability spikes when you're especially talking about manufacturing and bringing those clean energy jobs back to the U.S. Where do you see the dips? And I know you're going to say talking purely about climate change, which makes me sad, but I won't put words in your mouth. Yeah, well, there are plenty of dips, too. Um, You have to be very, very careful. There there are several. One is... um, you don't want to be in a position where you're touting how great America's energy advances have been uh, because a lot of people don't know it. So that's one watch out. The second watch out is you don't want to talk about how great fracking is Mm -hmm. because fracking has negative connotations where hydraulic fracturing does not. Another thing you don't want to do is you don't want to talk about clean energy without acknowledging the cost and emphasizing that you want it to be affordable. So your typical person hearing about clean energy thinks the following. So if I stand up and I'm a politician, hypothetically, and I say, we need more clean energy and you should have more clean energy, the person in the audience is going, Wait, those solar panels to put on my roof are going to cost eighteen dollars to $20,000. How do I afford that? Or I don't have a big yard. Where am I going to put the wind turbine? That's going to be too expensive to construct. People are very literal-minded and very narrowly focused proximity-wise to where they live. And you can't just say, oh, the price, of, sol- the price of, of clean energy has gone down. A lot of people haven't heard that story yet. So people have to experience it. And they have to have their friends experience it. So you can't. Be mindful. If, 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 if energy is clean, for, here's the difference. People on the left are about substitution. We want to get rid of source X that's dirty and replace it with source Y that's clean. Mm-hmm. About or, A or B. Mm-hmm. People who are center right are focused on and. We should have A and B and C and D and E. But the thing that matters to people on the right much more than on the left is, is it affordable? And if it's not affordable and it's not accessible and it just seems like it's benefiting wealthy people who can own a Tesla or can put solar panels on their roof, they're not interested. Because and then it makes clean energy elitist. It makes clean energy elitist. And that's one of the biggest problems that it faces. It isn't that people don't want it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's like it's dangling something expensive out in front of them that they can't have and it's kind of taunting them. And you don't want to be in that position. You want to make it seem accessible. So after the Texas blackouts happened in February, which also feels like 17 years ago. Yeah, right. um, You know, one thing that I have been thinking a lot about is just, you know, sort of the way in your, you want your retirement fund to be diverse, right? And you want any investments, not that I have a lot of investments, but you want to have diversity in in many different aspects of life. And it seems to make sense to me that you have, we should have that in our energy portfolios too. Exactly. And I was thinking about, and I don't know how much, if you've done, maybe, maybe this will be the subject of your next focus group, the colonial pipeline cyber attack this week that now in my area, right outside of DC, we're starting to see shortages in gas stations and panic buying. And I just thought we're so fragile, right? We're so fragile that a hack could disrupt us and lead to panic in an already panicked time. So then I think about, you know, energy security from 
a cyber perspective and have you, have you talked, you know, do you talk to your groups about scarcity or about, you know, is there a fear of intermittency? I know that has been an issue before with sometimes when we talk about, um, you know, more of the traditional clean energy, I guess the wind, wind and solar. Yeah. Um, we've, we've talked about the, the, well, we've tested messaging from the opponent's side. So, cause we, we do a pro con debate. So we test both sides of an issue. So when we've had the opponent say, well, you know, wind doesn't blow 24 seven, sun doesn't shine all day. Um, that's a, that, that people, conservatives get that. That's one of the issues that they have with wind and solar. So being able to expand the conversation about clean to be about advanced nuclear, hydro, so forth, gives them the ability to talk about baseload energy and being able to consistently produce it 24 seven. And so that's really important. You know, conservatives are nuts and bolts about this stuff. For them, it's like energy is energy for the most part. As long as it's affordable, they're not going to get really bent out of shape about where it comes from. As long as it's not polluting their specific backyard or their community. Yeah, if, if they can afford it and it's accessible, they're, they're good. It's people on the left who, are, who, are, who think about, well, this source is better than that source in terms of clean and larger environmental impacts. And they're willing potentially to pay a little bit more for energy that's that's cleaner. That's not they, they do it on principle on the left. On the right, that's not something they do on principle. Have any of your groups have you talked about energy choice, which I know is an issue in Georgia a few years ago with their solar initiative? And I, I think Arizona was also working on that issue where, you know, to, uh, to appeal to conservatives on from that angle that you should get to choose what your energy source is, like energy freedom. Yeah, we have talked, talked about that. Um, you know, you have the right to, to not have to rely on your utility. You have the right to, but yes, and that actually does work. But then it leaves the question, well, how do you afford where, it? Where are you going to get it from, right? <laughs> right. You know, so it, 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 it is definitely a powerful image of, of being free from the man, you know, whoever the man is, right? Um, it, it's got its limitations. If you had any sort of parting advice for listeners in how they talk about clean energy, climate change to the people in their lives who might be more reluctant, what would that be? The advice would be, and this might sound a little bit counterintuitive, on every issue that where I test the messaging and I work across a whole set of issues completely unrelated to climate in addition to climate. Uh, is the construct typically is here's the problem, here's the solution. Put the problem first, then the solution. With climate and clean energy, my recommendation is work backwards. Start with what you have in common, which is a desire for more clean energy. Establish what kind of clean energy the other person would like to have. If you agree with it, agree. Build some common ground. And then you can say, well, you know, part of the reason we need to do this is that we're seeing Scientists tell us that the earth is warming, the weather is becoming more unpredictable. And eventually over time, this will be something that helps us address that problem too. And so you're not making people nervous by starting off the conversation with, let me tell you why climate change is going to bring a global catastrophe and we have to do such and such now to stop it. Right. You've already lost people. They're rolling their eyes. Yeah, they, 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 ha they have lost their eyes. They think they're gonna, you're going to drag them into an unpleasant political conversation. Mm -hmm. So... The, as one person said to me, approach the issue laterally, not frontally. And, and that was very, very smart advice. Uh, my friend Renee Lertzman said that to me. 
who, by the way, would be an interesting guest for your podcast. Oh, great. I will connect offline to set that up. I love bringing interesting, different guests to our, our listeners. And and what you just said about building common ground, I feel like is a lesson that we could use in everything we talk about, where there are sides, so to speak. Yeah. Well, well your, 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 your boss, Bob Inglis, is the master of that. He's he really always is. looking for some place where he can find some common ground. He does it with hosts on TV shows. I've seen him do it with audiences live. I've seen him do it and he's masterful at it. And this is all about adding to the people who might agree on something. You've got to find the something you find the common thread and then build from there. And I'm going to carry that advice with me in the conversations that I have with people um, in, in this job and beyond in my personal life. I think that's a, those are, it's a great piece of advice to end on. And, and I feel like I could talk to you for hours and we'll have you back sometime when you have some new exciting information to share. I think that it would be great to have you as a regular guest for sure, Rich. I'd be honored to do it. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Price, I think public opinion is so interesting, right? And like this work that is so targeted that our friend Rich Chow does is informative and it's also really important. <laughs> yeah, and he's also somebody that known that Bob has known for a long time, but you know, to drill down and and to come up with the What's the best way to put it? The I would say like the mess. I mean, he's kind of figured out what people need to hear and how they need to hear it. Right. To the degree that, you know, while there may be some that disagree with that approach, it is by and large, you know, a, a consensus, you know, PR approach on, on the messaging because he's done the testing, um, focus groups, you know, you know, talking to different groups, individuals. You know, to, to kind of frame the conversation in this way that would be most helpful and beneficial to us, especially our work, you know, on the eco right. For sure. It's I just anytime we have a, a briefing with him or I hear him speak, I feel like I've learned something. And so, you know, I know that we got a little bit off target, not, you know, talking about um, Liz Cheney and the vote to remove her from her leadership position, which happened the, the day before Rich and I recorded but um, even though that's not on topic for climate, it just is a reflection, you know, the, the people that he was talking to and how they regard that move. And only time will tell what the long term ramifications of that are. But, you know, every every decision that is made by a lawmaker it is, you know, a lot of times I think that it's not born by what their constituents or what people are feeling. Right. And, and we see that play out. You know, what Rich does is definitely more focus group targeted. But when you expand that and look at the polling and something like 67 percent of Americans support a carbon tax, but we do not have 60 percent of members of Congress supporting a carbon tax. So, you know, I think it's just really interesting to see how what people do when they have that kind of information. Agreed. Um, thanks for bringing that interview to our listeners this week. Um, we'll certainly be back with a lot more next week. More on that, uh, hopefully in a minute. Um, do want to give a shout out to some new members, Florence H. in Pennsylvania, Jim A. in Colorado, Corrine C. in New Mexico, Anthony R. in Georgia, Gary G. in Oklahoma, Republican.org forward slash join. That is where you can sign on uh, to join our team. And you mentioned Lawmaker a second ago. 
new, I, I guess really new legislation is not the way to put it, but updated legislation that was dropped and filed this week, Chels? That's right. So um, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick from Pencil- outside Pennsylvania, I mean, outside Philadelphia, mm-hmm. his district, he reintroduced for the third time the Market Choice Act. This was the bill that was originally conceived by um, friend of the pod. I've been dying to say that friend of the pod, <laughs> Carlos Curbelo, back in 2018. Fitzpatrick was an original co-sponsor of that bill back when Curbelo first dropped it. And I remember I was on vacation in July of 2018, getting ready to go to my 30th high school reunion. Now I just totally aged myself um, when that happened. And we made this great video that explained what it was. Anyway, he has since, you know, Carlos, as we all know, lost his reelection in 2018. And then um, Fitzpatrick reintroduced it in 2019 and again um, just this week. So. He's the only Republican who has his name on a carbon tax bill. We would certainly love to see more. And and not that we are endorsing this bill specifically, as you know, Price, and as I would like to clarify for our listeners, we don't take positions on actual legislation because of our nonprofit status. We do educate on, on issues, and we support in concept the idea of a carbon tax. So his bill would um, eliminate the gas tax, replace it with a carbon tax, use um, partly use those revenues for um, for infrastructure upgrades, which, you know, if anyone has driven on a road recently, you know, we desperately need. And if you want to know more or you want to take an action to thank him for his leadership, check your inbox or sign up to be a member. We have um, our latest action does include a thank you to um, Brian Fitzpatrick for his leadership. Yes. While we cannot endorse, we can thank. As an educational campaign in 501C, that we can certainly thank lawmakers, especially conservative lawmakers, for leading on climate. And that's exactly what we want to do uh, with Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. Oh, All right. wait. Fun, fun fact, though, Price. He and I share a birthday. Oh, wow. I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> what are the chances? What are the chances that you can fill everybody in on guests next week? So it's up in the air still whether it's actually going to be locked in, but I'm really trying to bring in Ann Kelly from Ceres. She is also a friend of the EcoRight and her work in gathering. So she recently got 80 of the largest U.S. businesses and investors, including Amazon, Best Buy, Nestle, McDonald's, like these are household names, right, Um, to sign on to ask lawmakers to support a robust infrastructure package that will address the climate crisis. And, you know, this has been, you know, and again, this is not necessarily our path, but it's a path and we need all the paths right toward toward progress. And I do like that the current administration is looking in every issue how to work climate in. And I know there are some people that think, well, that's like a backdoor attempt to try to, you know, do something aggressive on climate change. And it's just to me reflective that climate has now infiltrated all aspects of our lives infrastructure, healthcare, the economy, agriculture. And so it's really not just an environmental issue. It's an everything issue. And Ceres has been a great partner to us and their member companies all, you know, sign carbon reduction pledges and so on and so forth. So she's just really great, has her finger on the pulse of what corporate America is thinking on climate. 
Well, we will bring that to you next week. As always, we are working ahead, but some things, sometimes you have to pivot and some things don't always work out guest-wise, but that is the plan that we have set right now, right, Chels? And we will bring that to you next week. Until then, how about have a good week and we'll see you again next week. Yeah, keep it real, Price. All right. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.